Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. You are listening to Parliament Matters, a Hansard Society production supported by the Joseph Rowntree Charitable Trust. Learn more at hansardsociety.org.uk slash pm. Hello and welcome to Parliament Matters, the podcast from the Hansard Society about the institution at the heart of our democracy, Parliament itself. I'm Ruth Fox. And I'm Mark Darcy. Every week we're going to be analysing what's going on behind the Gothic facade of Westminster. Helping you to stay on top of the key parliamentary issues of the week and what lies ahead. And we'll be explaining how the system works. And hearing about the latest research and innovations in Parliament and politics from influential thinkers and practitioners. Providing new perspectives from inside and outside of Westminster. And we'll be travelling back in time to some of the pivotal moments in parliamentary history. To help you understand exactly how we've arrived where we are today. Coming up... It's been another crazy week in the House of Commons, or Westenders as I now like to affectionately think of it. Who needs TV drama when you've got the soap opera that is Westminster on Thames? Yes, indeed. There was a fear in Parliament that their proceedings might be rather overshadowed this week by Boris Johnson's appearance at the Covid inquiry, but never fear, MPs rose to the challenge. A high-profile ministerial resignation, not one but two significant Commons rebellions, including one which brought Rishi Sunak's first Commons defeat of his premiership. And to cap it all off, there was Suella Braverman's rather vengeful resignation or possibly sacking statement in front of MPs. And there's also an interesting new crop of private members' bills. Yeah, plenty of excitement to be had with the latest collection of them. There's an attempt to block Sadiq Khan's expansion of the London Ultra Low Emission Zone, the ULES. There's an attempt to clamp down on SLAP's strategic lawsuits against public participation. And former Prime Minister Liz Truss has an interesting-looking bill, a bit late down the batting order, which will attempt to block young children getting gender-changing treatments. start at the beginning of the week with the drama, the government backbench rebellions. 
um, first on the Victims and Prisoners Bill and then swiftly followed later in the evening by a backbench rebellion on the statutory instrument related to net zero. Yeah, two very distinct causes here. The, the first one was an amendment to bring in a body that would oversee compensation payments to people who had suffered under the contaminated blood scandal, people who had been given things like hepatitis and HIV by blood transfusions or blood products, factor 8 is something used by haemophiliacs, for example, uh, from the NHS in the 70s and 80s. This is a very, very long-running campaign. This has been rumbling on for decades. There's been an official inquiry. It's recommended a body like this. The government went some way towards saying that it would try and bring something like that in, but MPs more or less regardless, ploughed on, and enough of them voted to override the government by a majority of, I think it was two in the end, um, to defeat the government. And that was Rishi Sunak's first actual Commons defeat since he became Prime Minister. Yeah, so 22 Conservative MPs backed the amendment from the Labour MP Diana Johnson. And as you say, it was interesting because the minister had made attempts to get his troops on board by offering to put in an amendment in the report stage in the Lords to deliver much of what the amendment proposed. That wasn't enough to get them on side. The MPs clearly wanted something now. They wanted something nailed down. And they voted for a provision to set up this compensation body it was interesting. It was a disparate body, a disparate group of Conservative Absolutely. MPs. It, was, it wasn't one faction, was no. it? I mean, when you've got a cause that unites the former Lord Chancellor, Sir Robert Buckland, on the one hand, and Dame Andrea Jenkins, a yeah. pretty hardline Brexiteer, on the other, this is not just one bit of the Conservative Party. This is a sort of full-spectrum rebellion, yeah. if you like. So I, th- I think one of the, the, the uniting factor here is not necessarily a sort of an ideological difference. It's about those MPs, I suspect, having got constituency cases that are quite difficult. I mean, Roman Schisty was a Conservative MP who backed Dinah Johnson's amendment and he made very clear he'd got experience of a constituency case that he'd been fighting for compensation for and I suspect that was true of, of, of most of the MPs who backed the amendment because I think it was a three-line whip. I think it was, yeah. I mean, it usually is on these things and it was it was quite significant. There is a suggestion that the government whips didn't quite realise the extent of the rebellion they were going to face, partly perhaps because it didn't come from one particular faction yeah. and that might have set alarm bells ringing a bit more quickly. But there was a, su- a suggestion that they were caught a bit on the hop by this. And the other point that people are making, though, is the role played in this by Dame Diana Johnson, who's the chair of the Home Affairs Committee, vastly experienced Labour parliamentarian, but someone who also networks very effectively. Mm. And she got the Labour opposition behind this. No rebellion against a government normally succeeds unless the opposition is voting pretty solidly for the same proposition as well. And she got Labour to sign up to this. And that's quite an achievement, because what we're talking about here is hundreds of millions of pounds worth of compensation at the very least, potentially billions. No one's really quite sure what the figure is ultimately going to be. And she got Rachel Reeves, the Shadow Chancellor, to sign up to that, to to at least some degree, to that spending commitment, even though she's taken a very, very hard line that Labour is not going to be signing any blank checks before the next election. Yeah, and I I think she got 140 MPs signed up to the amendment in the end, with representation from 10 parties. So it was a pretty solid statement of intent. The interesting thing about it is, you're right, the whips didn't perhaps pick it up early enough, Um, There's a number of either abstentions or absences on the Conservative benches. So only 262, I think, of 350 Conservative MPs actually voted one way or the other. Some of the course will be 
absent for good reasons. I mean, I think a James... lot of them will turn out to have had unavoidable dental appointments yes. that evening. But... Yeah, I mean, you know, James Cleverly, for example, would have been en route to Rwanda. So some people have, will have been slipped from the whip. There will have been some pairing, I think. For example, Stephen Kinnock had indicated that he would have liked to have been in the chamber, but he was paired with a Conservative MP who would have voted against the amendment. Stephen, of course, had lost his mother, Glennis Kinnock, earlier in the week, so he wasn't in the House. And one of the problems we have is that there's not a lot of transparency around the voting records when because we can't really account for absences and who's been who's been paired and who's abstained because we simply know who voted for and who voted against and we don't know what the others yeah, <laughs> were. Well, I, I suppose it would be a bit too much to ask them to say I'm absent because of this. Y- yes, know. and that you know that that's one of the problems. But still, a lot of Conservative MPs were not present and didn't didn't participate. Yeah, and of course there was a second issue a little bit later on that evening, a vote against a statutory instrument to do with net zero and. And this did come from a bit of a faction, the kind of anti-net zero crowd on the Conservative benches who think that the, the country is willy-nilly signing up to commitments that are far too expensive for ordinary people. So they, they turned out in force to vote against something, but the government sailed through there because even though quite a number of Conservative MPs defied the party line, because the opposition was backing the government, yeah. it didn't really matter very much. Yeah, I mean, Professor Philip Cowley has pointed out, you know, the, he, he's the sort of doyen of studies of, of revolts on the backbenchers. He pointed out that this was actually a bigger Conservative backbench rebellion than the one on the victims and, and the compensation amendment, that 26 Conservative MPs voted against this statutory instrument, you know, known as the Draft Vehicle Emissions Trading Schemes Order. So not the sexiest uh, statutory instrument you could be voting against. But that was the sort of the, the right of the party, the net zero, anti-net zero brigade. Two former Home Secretaries, Sir Ola Bravman and Priti Patel, voted against the government, Jacob Rees-Mogg. So, as you say, the opposition was backing the government on this, so it, it, it sailed through. But it's an indication of there is a quite a crowd, 26, 26 mm. backbenchers prepared to... Uh, to defy that, yeah. defy the government. A harbinger of, tr- of trouble to come, perhaps. And uh, while that, there doesn't seem to have been a great sort of read across between the two rebellions, what it does kind of suggest, uh, it seems to me there are very strong late period John Major vibes now about the government. There's this constant low rumble of trouble in the Commons for one reason or another, and almost a slight end times feeling developing. Yes, and that then brings us quite neatly to um, to the events of Rwanda and Suella Braverman's, uh, as you say, resignation or sacking speech, depending upon how you view it, and uh, the immigration minister resigning over a, a bill that he thinks is not tough enough to tackle illegal migration. Yes, Boris Johnson had a phrase in the COVID inquiry about uh, trouble ahead with COVID seeming uh, like a cloud no bigger than a man's hand. And this one has suddenly hoved into view and is now over Westminster, pouring out rain, thunder and lightning (laughs) as the government seeks to get its Rwanda policy, literally as well as metaphorically, off the ground. They haven't been able yet to perform their stated policy of deporting people seen as illegal migrants to Rwanda. The Supreme Court has blocked them with its latest ruling that, amongst other things, said it did not regard Rwanda as a safe destination to deport migrants to. And that's really caused ructions on the Conservative benches where immigration and clamping down on illegal migration in particular is is something that really, really resonates as an incredibly high priority for a lot of Conservative MPs, particularly the red wall seats that they won from Labour back in 2019. They really want to see that done. They're increasingly infuriated and frustrated that it hasn't happened. Yeah, I mean, I think when you look at the language that's been used this week, you've essentially got a battle for the for the soul of the Conservative Party, the heart and soul of the Conservative Party. You know, what do they see as the role of party? 
Parliament versus the courts? Do they respect the rule of law in terms of how it engages with international law? Robert Jenrick's resignation statement as, as immigration minister said that the, the small boats crisis is a national emergency. So Ella Braverman talked about, you know, the Conservative Party facing electoral ob- oblivion. Rishi Sunak reportedly said in the, the meeting of the 1922 Backbench Committee, after the, the treaty had been published, that for the Conservative Party it was unite or die. Absolutely. I mean, this is absolutely existential now to the government. I mean, there's a, there's a basic law of politics here, which is that the general public may not notice the fine details of your policy. But the one thing they don't like is a government that looks like a shower. And this government is not getting its stuff through, partly because of the courts. It's beset by rebellions and ministerial resignations. So there are problems. And so it, it just looks very scrappy to start with. And you do get a feeling that Rishi Sunak's like one of those sort of Roman horse riders with one foot on the back <laughs> of two different horses horses, uh, trying to keep both of them together and not be pulled apart and end up crashing to the ground. And he's got the MPs who believe that the UK should remain in the European Convention on Human Rights, should respect it and should respect international law. It's got the MPs for whom immigration is an existential issue on which their electoral future depends and who think bluntly that the government, in some cases, Lee Anderson, the deputy chairman of the Conservative Party, actually said this out loud, should simply ignore the rulings of the courts and start deporting people. So you've got, you've got a huge division there and it's very, very difficult to see how they can rope them together unless some sort of herd survival instinct kicks in and it doesn't feel like that at the moment. Yeah, I mean, it, it, essentially it looks like the Conservative Party, and it, you can make an argument it's been this for some time, it is an ungovernable coalition. I think the, the problem Rishi Sunak may now have with this deal is have the moderates in Cabinet, uh, the law officers, for example, given quite a lot on this bill in terms of how far they've gone with some of the, the provisions around breaches of international law, albeit limited, it's not the full fact leaving the European Convention on Human Rights that some were speculating it might be, and that obviously Bravman and, and, and uh, Jenrick want. So have they given ground only to discover that Jenrick's walked out of Cabinet and, and sort of left them with this bill that they're perhaps not entirely happy with themselves? You've and then more got, ground now to give. Yeah, and then you've got Robert Jenrick and Bravman outside the Cabinet now making clear that in their view the bill is not going to achieve the stated objectives. So it becomes very difficult to see how the right wing of the party is going to support the bill if their sort of outriders are basically saying it won't achieve what the government wants. And how far do you move before the other wing of the party decides it doesn't really like what it, what's there and decides it can rebel too? Yeah. Uh, it's a very, I mean, there are a lot of moving parts in this. First of all, there's a new treaty with Rwanda, which is designed to keep the Supreme Court happy by having lots of new mechanisms which will guarantee the proper treatment of migrants who are eventually sent there under this scheme. And secondly, you've got the new bill that the government's bringing in, emergency legislation, due to have its second reading next Tuesday. And this essentially declares that Rwanda is a safe place and no one can say that it isn't a safe place. And if you have a uh, an attempt in the courts to say you can't send this person to Rwanda because it's not safe there. It's very, very difficult to make that stick. That's coming up for debate on Tuesday. But what's the full timetable for this? Well, we know that the second reading will be will be next week. The government's talked about this as emergency legislation. Now, when they, they use that phrase, what's normally meant is that fast tracks through the House of Commons all its stages in in a day, and then it goes to the Lords. They usually want a couple of days. It looks like the government's taking potentially longer than that, that it's not going to push everything through in a day because it's only scheduled second reading for next week. We They could potentially say that the next stages will be uh, the following week. 
uh, and push it's, it through. Isn't much time because they rise on the 19th no. for the Christmas break. Yeah, but they might want to get it into the Lords for the beginning of January, or they might be saying no. We'll we'll, we'll be dealing with the later stages at the, the start of the the January sitting. Um, so so we don't know in short, but it's it's not the sort of approach to emergency legislation that's normally yeah. taken. Interestingly, Suella Bravman, of whom we'll be saying a bit more later on, no doubt, um, said in her resignation come sacking statement to the, the Commons that she thought MPs should sit over Christmas if necessary to get this bill through, <laughs> which I, I, I don't think will be exactly a popular cause with <laughs> no. a lot of them. But uh, <laughs> can't think that that was going to win friends. And... But there, there's, there's interesting things. Maybe one reason this isn't emergency legislation is that the one thing that you might be able to get the Conservative rebels who want a harder line and the opposition parties led by Labour who broadly want a a softer line together on is to oppose a timetable motion on this bill. It's very hard to see them finding a common line on the substance of the bill, but they might decide that they could disrupt things and take out their fury by stopping the government from ramming the thing through in a single bite. So that may be one reason why this isn't emergency legislation, or maybe the government is still getting its details together and wants a little bit longer to make sure it's got all its ducks in a row. I mean, who knows? Well, it does feel a bit rushed because they, it was interesting, they published the bill the day before they laid it before Parliament, which is not normal. Normally it's published at the time that it's laid before Parliament, but they, they did it a day beforehand. Now, some suggestions were that that was designed to undercut Suala Bravman's speech and it was it was pushed through quickly. Um, so we'll see. But yeah, I think programming, just to explain to listeners, programming is, is a motion that takes place at the same time as second reading where the government sets out the timetable for each stage of the scrutiny process of the bill. So there'll be X number of hours for committee stage yeah. and then you'll take report stage after a certain number yeah. of hours and so on and so yeah. forth. So it's all rigorously timetabled. Yeah, and and um, it can be debated and, and, and voted on. Um, so there will be, you know, as you say, possibly attempts. Normally these are sort of, you know, agreed between the, the whips, the, the business managers behind the scenes and they're, they're often not controversial. But where there are real debates and divisions on a bill... Sometimes this is where you see it on the programming motion. This is where you see it come together publicly mm-hmm. because it gives them an opportunity to to vote to basically say we need more time for scrutiny. Absolutely. Um, and and do, you, do you remember the, the? I mean, the classic example of this is the Nick Clegg Lords Reform Bill, yes. which was completely stymied, having got a massive majority at second reading. Yeah. It was then completely stymied because Labour wouldn't agree a timetable for debate. Yeah. Say how many weeks of scrutiny you want, Labour yeah. asked, and, and they wouldn't say. And so it was the government of the day was faced with a sort of open-ended, never-ending debate yeah. and eventually ended up pulling the bill. So that's the kind of games that could be played. Now, now the second moving part in, in all this is, is, of course, the Rwanda Treaty. Now, Parliament does have a bit of a way of getting into debating treaties, although the mechanism for doing it isn't particularly strong. It's under a thing called the Constitutional Reform and Governance Act that was sort of whistled through in the final hours of Gordon Brown's premiership. Yeah, so Parliament doesn't have to debate, doesn't have to vote on, doesn't have to formally approve a treaty. Um, There's a provision, as you say, in the Constitutional Reform and Governance Act, the CRAG Act, um, whereby the government lays the treaty before Parliament for up to 21 sitting days, and it is for one of either House, the Commons or the Lords, to consider whether they wish to pass a motion expressing a view on it. So they can force a debate on it in the end if they wanted to, I suppose. Except in the Commons, of course, the government controls the timetable, so whether or not the vote took place, <laughs> how that comes about is, is, is interesting. Because this is quite an untested mechanism, really. I mean, it may have been around since 2010, but it, it hasn't really been picked up and used. No, not, not often. And, and the, the issue is, even if Parliament expresses a view, it can't actually stop the government ratifying the treaty. 
all it can do is essentially delay ratification if the government is willing to to wait. It's not really a provision that's been tested because if if Parliament, one of the Houses of Parliament, did resolve that they wanted to delay ratification at the, within the 21-day sitting period, it's not at all clear what would then happen because that has never been tested. So you could have another 21-sitting-day period delaying things, but then what? You know, could you? Does it then roll over? You have another 21-day delay. Nobody knows. Nobody knows. Um, and it, I do wonder whether, you know, depending upon the numbers and how this debate develops over the next few weeks whether this is something that will come to the forum more than it has in the past and actually you might see an attempt to try and delay ratification of of the treaty and we we might see the crag provisions tested for the first time we'll have to wait and see and i suppose the, the killer point about this as well is, is that that 21 sitting days deadline takes us well into january in yeah. one single gulp so the, the the deadline that should the government is ultimately operating against is trying to have something to show to the electorate by the time it goes for a general election and it's very very hard to see how the new system it's trying to bring in now can have generated palpable results to show the voters by say a spring election so there's that factor playing as well here yeah, I mean, you're assuming that there might be a spring election. I think the question is, does, does this does this political situation in which Rishi Sunak now finds himself lend itself to the possibility of an early general election, or is he still going to be minded perhaps to play it long into the autumn? Um, we'll have to see. But you know, it's not impossible to see if the bill gets basically snarled up, if it comes across objections in the House of Lords, the peers are you know delaying tactics, they they're not happy with it. Um, it's not difficult to see how the Prime Minister might decide that actually an election is needed to resolve the matter and you go to the to the country on a, a sort of, you know, who is sovereign? Is, is it going to be Parliament? Is it going to be the courts? Is, is it, it going to be... Peers versus the people. It, yeah. So, a classic. Yeah. And that's the point we haven't yet talked about is you take this bill into the House of Lords and listeners may remember a while ago we talked to Lord David Anderson, uh, the crossbench peer and super lawyer, uh, about this very subject and he was saying that a bill that simply declared as a kind of finding a fact that Rwanda was safe was going to run into deep, deep trouble very quickly in the House of Lords. So Take that prediction on board because we may see it acted out quite soon. And all this raises the question of where now for Rishi Sunak as Prime Minister? How's he going to get the Rwanda bill through without doing further damage to party unity? How's he going to deal with some of his ex-ministers who now appear to be gunning for his position, certainly on, on, on immigration matters? Could we possibly see yet another Conservative leadership challenge? Are we seriously talking here about the prospect of a fourth Prime Minister within a single parliamentary term, all from the same party? Some Conservative MPs clearly are, because there's rumours that more letters have gone into the 1922 committee expressing a lack of confidence in him. Now, they need 15% of MPs to do that in order to force a leadership confidence vote, but... I don't know. I mean, as you say, a fourth Conservative leader, I mean, it, it, it sounds preposterous, frankly, but all bets are off given, you know, the behaviour of, of the, and think how things have gone over the last few years. Um, we talked to Philip Norton, the author of the history of the 1922 committee on an earlier episode. Um, and, and as he, he said, you know, the, the way that the 22 works, MPs can put their letters in confidentially. They don't have to reveal that they've done it. So we don't exactly know how many letters are in, will go have in. have to tell the truth about whether... Yeah, yeah. You know, it's a plotter's charter, um, and there's clearly a lot of plotting going on. And there are clearly 
Conservative MPs who are looking not just at what's going to happen in the coming months and the prospects of a, of a general election and whether they'd be better changing horses. They're also looking at positioning for what may come after a general election. Well, indeed. But you almost feel this... We were talking earlier about, you know, is this going to end up as a sort of peers versus the people kind of themed general election? The question here seems to me, who governs the Conservative Party? And is it Rishi Sunak? Yeah. Uh, and it's not at all clear at the moment that he does. Is he going to lose control of this process? Are his troops going to revolt? Or is a kind of unity herd instinct going to reassert itself? And the Conservative Party takes a deep breath, calms itself down, does a little bit of light yoga meditation (laughs) uh, and achieves inner peace. It is the most extraordinary situation and it's very hard to see how you could go on if you change Prime Minister yet again without having a general election. But on the other hand, lots of people said that when the change was made from this trust of Rishi Sunak really not all that long ago. And, you know, just as a, re- a result of these changes, Robert Jenrick uh, resigning, we've now, we're now going to have two new ministers. They're splitting the immigration roles. It's too big a job for one person. And what a poison chalice it is too, <laughs> I would have thought, because uh, whichever way you jump on policy terms on, on, on that issue, it seems to me that half the Parliamentary Conservative Party is going to take against you. Yeah, and uh, we've now got the chair of the Defence Select Committee taking a job in government just well, a couple of months after he became chair of the committee, yes, indeed, um, the, the, gone in a solicitor general. Yeah, this this is Robert Courts, who, who had been a minister very briefly, and then went for the chair of the defence committee when Tobias Elwood, of blessed memory, was defenestrated from that job for speaking out of turn, really, essentially taking policy positions that his committee wasn't behind. And Robert Courts came in just in September, yeah. and now he's back in government as solicitor general. Now he is a solicitor, and you know, when the prime minister calls and says, "Robert, I need you," uh, maybe it's quite a hard thing to do to say. No Prime Minister, I've only just been elected to the Select Committee, but the Defence Select Committee is a fantastically important Select Committee at a time like this when there's a live war going on in Europe and deep concern about the state of the armed forces. And an incoming chair always has a, a slightly different agenda which the troops on the committee have to get lined up behind. And so Robert Courts will have just come in and be about that process of setting his own stamp on the committee, and then he's out and someone else is going to come in as well. I mean, I don't know whether he's interested in the job, but my personal tip is Jesse Norman, a former minister who's just come in as an ordinary member of the Defence Select Committee, might make a, a, a sensible Conservative chair for that committee, but who knows, it's sort of early days yet. But, but the point here is that the inner divisions within the Conservative Party and the effect on government have a ripple effect on Parliament and Parliament's ability to scrutinise the executive. And once again, we've got churn on the committee corridor, churn within government departments. In these circumstances, is it any wonder that we don't get any policy coherence? For everything churn, 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 there is a season. Sorry, (laughs) that was awful. Uh, Moving on. (laughs) Moving delicately on. It's also a new private members bill season and this week has seen MPs who've been lucky in the private members bill process, who've won a bit of debating time for the bill of their choice, announcing some of their proposals. Take it away, Ruth. Yes. So we're talking about ballot bills. Um, So the the, the top 20 that were drawn out of the ballot a few weeks ago, they had to present their bills this week. I always describe it as sort of winning the sort of legislative equivalent of Willy Wonka's golden ticket, (laughs) the opportunity for time in the the chamber to to bring your legislative proposal forward. So, yeah, we know now what the 20 bills are going to be. So top of the list and therefore that's got the best chance of getting a bill through in terms of the time available is Julie Elliott, the Labour MP for Sunderland Central, who's got a bill uh, about the Building Society's 1986 Amendment Bill, which sounds incredibly dull, but essentially is to allow building societies to support more first-time buyers to, to basically buy their own home. So um, very yeah. noble 
noble intent. And what she's got is the chance to have the first debate on the first day allocated to private members' bills. So she's absolutely front of the queue. She's chosen something that's relatively non-controversial, so there may even be time for a second debate on another bill that day. And someone further down the line will be making the calculation of whether that's a good moment to pounce. But looking at some of the other uh, there, I mean, there's some hardline politics from, uh, for example, the MP for Dartford, Gareth Johnson, who is bringing in a bill intended to stymie the Mayor of London, Sadiq Khan's um, ultra-low emission zone expansion. He, he wants to reverse that by Act of Parliament. That will be, uh, yeah, I think some, some quite hard London-related politics in a mayoral election year. Uh, so watch that particular space. It's that- also quite an interesting argument about challenging the powers, the, the democratic mandate of the Mayor of London by Westminster, London-based Westminster MPs. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is this is a, a direct attempt to interfere in a devolution settlement in some ways. Now, you can argue that the devolution settlement isn't quite right or that it extends beyond the boundaries of London. So there are all sorts of reasons why you can do it. But it's going to be a pretty hard-edged debate, that one, I yeah. would have thought. Yep. Another one of, of interest is uh, Wayne David's uh, bill, the Caffilly, uh, Labour MP for Caffilly. He's got a, a bill about strategic litigation against public participation, which is also known as SLAPS, which is essentially is attempts by, frankly, rich people, rich individuals, you know, Russian oligarchs, for example, companies who can uh, afford it to employ lawyers to essentially pursue strategic litigation against journalists, people who are investigating them, authors who are writing books about them that they don't like, to basically snarl them up in legal proceedings in the courts. And legal costs. And legal costs. Um, and essentially use their financial firepower to, um, to stop these individuals or organisations looking into what they're doing. Because you can, you can actually bankrupt a, a hostile journalist or possibly yep. a, a newspaper or small news organisation without ever actually having to win the action. You can just swamp them in court costs yep. and legal costs to the point where uh, they have to uh, surrender. Yeah, and a good example of this recently was the author Catherine Belton, who's written a very good biography of Vladimir Putin and got snarled up in, I think it was four or five libel suits. Now, her publishers stood by her and fought it, but if they hadn't, the book wouldn't have come out. And essentially, you know, the people behind the legal proceedings would have won by snarling her up in legal costs. Another one, and this is very much in, in your um, particular comfort zone, is a bill from the Labour MP Emma Lule-Buck to oh, yes. amend the Licensing Act 2003 so that licensing hour orders can be made by negative resolution statutory instrument. Crowds are excitedly gathering <laughs> around Westminster as we speak. Yes, I, don't, I, don't, I think it'd be pretty rare to see a, 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 a bill of any kind, private members' bill, proposing that they want to to do things by statutory instrument and by the, the, the form of statutory instrument that attracts the lowest level of parliamentary scrutiny. But the rationale behind this is essentially, I think, a response to the mess that the government got itself in during the women's it was the European Championship final, I think, earlier this summer, where the government hadn't given sufficient thought to the fact that if they got through to the final, they might need to relax licensing hours. And uh, as a consequence, they found that you know pubs and clubs and so on couldn't open and provide their customers... Uh, with alcohol earlier in the day. Now, uh, interestingly, the government's launched a consultation for the men's championships next summer, should we get through to the semi-final or the final. So they've obviously given sufficient thought to that. But essentially, I think what, what Emma's bill is trying to do is to resolve the problem so that basically, if we got through to another uh, you know, not just a football final, but any major sporting event, and there was a desire to relax licensing hours, 
government ministers could do it quite quickly through a statutory instrument, a form of delegated legislation, without needing to... Uh... Go through the full parliamentary fandango, yeah. basically. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I think there's plenty of other interesting stuff in there. The Labour MP Lloyd Russell Moyle is attempting to ban conversion therapy. Another MP, Kim Johnson, is looking to reform the law on joint enterprise. This is the kind of catch-all law where, you know, if you're a member of a bank-robbing gang and one of the gangs shoots a cashier... Uh, everyone in the gang is caught with uh, you know, a charge of murder or whatever uh, as a result of that. And uh, the suggestion there is that this law is drawn too widely and a lot of people who really don't deserve heavy sentences are getting caught up in it. Uh, so she's trying to change that. There, there's a very interesting-looking bill on the nature of British citizenship from the Northern Ireland DUP MP Gavin Robinson as well. So there's plenty of action going to be taking place on those private members' bill Fridays in future. Yeah, and of course uh, an interesting one, although it's very low down the list, so probably won't make much progress is the one from Liz Truss, the former Prime Minister. Oh, yes, indeed. Uh, Health and Equality Acts Amendment Bill, which will regulate access to hormone therapy for children under 18. I suppose the question about all this, we've just been talking about the prospect of an early election, is how many of these bills will actually get to the wicked? If there's a spring election, it's hard to see pretty much any of these bills becoming law. Yeah, I mean, if, you, if you're looking at, at a sort of a May general election, Parliament would have to dissolve in, in March. Um, the first seven Fridays... You get through the, the the top of the list of, of private members' bills, so they would they would make some progress, but they wouldn't be able to yeah. complete their proceedings, and they wouldn't be able to go through the Lords because, of course, they've got to go through the second house. So they've got to find a peer to adopt them and take them forward forward in in the Lords. If we run right into the autumn, there's a better chance, but inevitably, as in previous sessions, it will a lot will depend upon which bills attract government support, I and mean, you can see some clear and obvious ones that might. But quite a number, I suspect, will will fall by the wayside. It would be, I think, a bit of a surprise if pretty much any of these private members' bills actually made it very far. If there was a even a later spring or even an early autumn election, the, the timeline is very, very tight for getting stuff through now. So just time, really, to take a look at what delights Parliament has in store for us next week. And I suppose one thing not going on in Parliament, but which will attract an awful lot of parliamentary attention, will be Rishi Sunak's appearance before the COVID inquiry on Monday. He, of course, was the author of the highly controversial Eat Out to help out policy when he was Chancellor during the pandemic. And that might be a rather awkward time to be away from Parliament if there's uh, rebellion brewing in the Tory ranks as well. You think of Margaret Thatcher being at a summit in Paris during the leadership challenge which effectively ended her premiership. Yeah, I'm not sure quite. Uh, being at the COVID inquiry and sort of a few miles away in London is quite quite the same. But yeah, it does make potentially for an interesting PMQs next week, depending upon oh, what yeah. is revealed. Absolutely. So one to look for. Um, the other one I think we need to look out for is is Monday. There is a debate on three e-petitions. Now, we've talked on the, the pod in, in previous episodes about the importance of e-petitions. Um, there's three on the question of, of Palestine. Um, and interestingly, 500,000 people plus have signed these petitions, so a matter of huge public interest. And there'll be an awful lot of people watching online, I'm sure. Yeah. It doesn't tend to be directly broadcast on BBC Parliament because no. they always look at the main chamber, but uh, you know, people can log on to parliamentlive.tv and uh, and watch the proceedings there, and an awful lot do. It's all driven by these sort of media campaigns and hashtag social media. Yeah, so Cat Smith, the Labour MP who is chair of the committee now, I think, is going to lead on that. Um, then, of course, we've got a second reading of the Rwanda Bill, which we've already talked about. And then Foreign Office questions with the Minister of State, Andrew Mitchell. So, Deputy yeah. for David Cameron. Yes, Andrew Mitchell. He himself, of course, a former Cabinet Minister. For, he was Minister for International Development back in the day, uh, deputising for David Cameron in the uh, House of Commons. David Cameron, of course, has also had his own first Lord's question mm-hmm. time in the House of Lords. And MPs, I think, will still be grappling with this vexed question that we've talked about a couple of times now about how they manage to keep their fingers on the pulse with David Cameron because 
because uh, it's very difficult to monitor a big beast of politics who's not in the House of Commons coming to the dispatch box every month or so for questions. Yep. So I think that's probably all for for this week, Mark. Um, we'll see what drama awaits in the coming days, and uh, we'll uh, we'll be back next week. Turn on, tune in, drop out. Thanks, Ruth. Goodbye. Well, that's all from us for this week's episode of Parliament Matters. Please hit the follow or subscribe button in your podcast app to get the next episode as soon as it lands. And help us to make the podcast better by leaving a rating or review on Apple or Spotify and sharing your feedback. Our producer tells us it's important for the algorithm to give the show a boost. And Mark, tell us more about the algorithm. Well, what do I know about algorithms? You know, I write my scripts with a quill pen on vellum and then send it in by carrier pigeon. <laughs> Well, before we go, a quick reminder also that you can send us your questions on all things Parliament by visiting hansardsociety.org.uk slash PMEUQ. We'll be discussing them in future episodes, including our special Urgent Questions editions dedicated to what you want to know about Parliament. And you can find us across social media at Hansard Society to get more content related to the show and the wider work of the Hansard Society. Parliament Matters is produced by the Hansard Society and supported by the Joseph Roundtree Charitable Trust. For more information, visit hansardsociety.org.uk slash PM or find us on social media at Hansard Society.